Well, as they're making their way, I encourage you to make your way uh, to um, the Gospel of Luke. Um, I don't know if this got mentioned uh, or clarified yet, um, but as you're doing that, um, there is a potluck next week. And as part of that potluck, our goal in that potluck is to, are you ready for this, eat and fellowship with one another. Okay? Big goals, I know. Um, what, what's fellowship? Fellowship is a Christian word that, that refers to what happens when you're in relationship with somebody. And, you know, when you have that, that, uh, that, that time when you're talking with one another, and all of a sudden somebody starts to open up their heart a little bit, and it gets, gets kind of quiet, and everybody kind of leans in, and you're like, I guess we're going there. That is when fellowship is happening, right there. Uh, we want our church to be a place where our relationships with one another get to a point where we share life, all of life, not just the fun parts, not just the easy parts, but all of life with one another. We want to facilitate that and uh, happening and the building of relationships. And so next week we're having a potluck after church. So bring two dishes to pass, uh, things that we can share and enjoy with one another. Uh, also, as associated with that, alongside that, there will be uh, a soup cook-off, a chili cook-off, a pie cook-off, and a, if you're a kid, brownie cook-off. Okay. So if you'd like to enter into one or more of those contests, I think there are aprons out there and some other things to win. Uh, if you win one of those, uh, see Rachel B.C. for the details on that. But this is just meant to be a fun event, a potluck, bring a couple dishes to pass, um, and, uh, you know, just think of it in terms of this. Um, I'm going to bring enough food to feed my family, and if we all do that, we'll feed everybody's family, right? So, um, so looking forward to that. Uh, now, um, I want to begin our time in God's Word a little differently than what we have maybe been used to, and just invite you all to stand right now, if you're able, and follow along as I read from Luke chapter 24, this is verses 25 to 27, this is what the Word of God says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should shut should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. God, our Father, we do not want to be foolish. We do not want to be slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about Jesus. We want instead to be quick to listen and quick to embrace and to be transformed by the truth of your word that we might not only be encouraged by it, but that we might be transformed in every part of our heart and life. Father, we know that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And we pray that he would destroy all the works of the devil as we 
are transformed by your word according to your spirit's power and work within us. And Father, we pray for our time in the word this morning that the spirit would be busy destroying and busy rebuilding in us. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Please be seated. Well, if you're not familiar with the passage I just read, it is uh, the last. It's in the last chapter in Luke's gospel. It is uh, after Jesus has has been crucified and he has been raised from the dead. There's these two disciples that are walking along the road to the village of Emmaus, uh, outside of Jerusalem, and they're on this seven-mile journey to get there. And all of a sudden, this person that they don't recognize yet shows up and walks alongside them. And they're talking with him, and he is he is saying to them things like, well, what are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about this person named Jesus from Nazareth that we were hoping, we were thinking, we were dreaming was going to be the Messiah. And Jesus just plays along and says, well, tell me about that. Tell me about what you were thinking. And they... And then Jesus says this, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's not for about two hours that they recognize Jesus and he's explaining to them how all the Old Testament fits together and how all of it points to him. And then at the end of all that explanation, they come to the place where they're going to uh, spend the night and they're about to eat together. Jesus breaks bread and all of a sudden they go, oh, it was Jesus the whole time, right? It's my favorite account of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances because for whatever reason, they didn't recognize Jesus yet. I think the Lord intervened to keep them from recognizing him uh, so that when they finally did, all the pieces would fit together. And if there's a theme set of verses for this whole series we've been doing, it's these. That all of the Bible, all of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament as well as all the New Testament is about Jesus. And whenever a person is new in their faith, they're a lot like these two disciples. Um, they're better off than the Emmaus Road disciples were because they know about both Jesus' death and his resurrection because those are both part of the gospel message, right? Uh, uh, Josh was talking about how easy it is to share the gospel with people. That's true. You don't need to know much. What do you need to know? You need to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. If you know that, you know the gospel, Okay? That's the whole thing. But um, but what Pastor Josh and I have been trying to do in this series, because what a lot of people don't completely understand, is what anything in the Old Testament has to do with Jesus. Today, we've come to my favorite part of the whole series, to the Gospel accounts themselves, and to what they reveal about who Jesus is, and about what He has done for us, and about how he fulfills all the things that the Old Testament prophets have written to us. So, I don't know how long this is going to take, so I hope you brought lunch. Um, 
because this is my favorite part, okay? So buckle in. Um, but I want to show you seven of the most significant ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And hope that along the way that that helps you to know and love and obey Jesus better in our day-to-day lives. And I want to show you how that works. Uh, since I've got seven points, I need to get to the first one. Uh, which is that Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Adam. You remember back at the beginning when we looked at Genesis 3 and the fall, you'll remember that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan tempted both of them to take what God had forbidden. Right? God said, you can freely eat from all the trees in the whole garden. It's all there for you to enjoy. Uh, eat as much as you want, whenever you want. But of the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that one. But they both took what God had forbidden. Eve was deceived and giving in. But Adam, seeing what happened to his wife, because he was with her, according to the text, and with full knowledge of what he was doing, he rebels against God, declaring in his heart essentially this, not your will, God, but mine be done. And so he brought death to the whole human race that descended from him. But if you remember the story, as soon as this happened, God came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. He tracked them down. He confronted them in their sin, and he made a promise also in that moment. As soon as you have the first sin, you have the first announcement of the gospel that one would come who would born, be born the seed of the woman and that, that man, that person, would deal with sin. He would crush the serpent who had plunged humanity and the world in sin and death. And so from Genesis 3.15 on, throughout your whole rest of your Bible, you're looking for this person to come, to be born of a woman. Thousands of years later, in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is faced with another choice. In this case, to obey God would mean choosing death and bearing the weight of all humanity's sin. While to reject that death and that judgment would mean that humanity would remain condemned for what they did. How did Jesus pray? Beautiful. He says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And I believe it was in that moment of obedience that Jesus finished setting his mind on fulfilling the mission that God had given. And Paul proclaims to us in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, if by one man's trespass, that is, Adam's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
If you're not familiar with Romans 5, it's this beautiful passage where Paul lines up Adam and Jesus alongside one another, and he says, one man sinned and brought death to everybody that followed him. But Jesus Christ was completely obedient to God, and by his obedience and death, life came to everybody who followed him. And you get to pick which man you're going to bear the image of. You will either bear the image of the man who brings death or the image of the man who brings life. Everybody's born a follower of the one man. Everybody has to be reborn to bear the image of the other. Jesus is the better Adam because we have forgiveness of our sins through His death and eternal life through His resurrection when we put our faith in Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is also the blessing that God promised to Abraham. You probably remember this, but in case you don't, Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram to leave his country and his father and his mother and to go to a land that I will show you. And God, in the process of that, makes Abram several promises, including that his descendants will be a great nation, that they would inherit the land that God was sending them to live in. But more importantly, God also promised this. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations. Now the section of Scripture that immediately precedes this in Genesis is all of this listing of where all the nations of the world come from. Like, where do we get Africans? Where do we get Asians? Where do we get Europeans? Where do we get all these different races and groups of people? Well, Genesis chapter 11 tells us where they all came from, who their forefathers were. And then he calls Abram and he says, through you will come the blessing of all these nations. God was going to create one nation and out of this man Abram, and He was going to make him into a great nation, and through him would come the blessing to all nations. And Abram, I think, was probably thinking, you know, that means me and my folks are going to be fairly special. Right? Which is true, they are. The Jews are... Uh, in and of themselves, one of the groups of people who have been the greatest blessing in the world. You know, more Nobel Prizes are, are awarded to Jews than to any other race and group of people in the world. They have been tremendous blessing in that sense. But you know what the bigger blessing is? Jesus who according to his humanity was born the son of David of the tribe of Judah, descended from Israel, descended from Isaac, descended from Abraham. Jesus is the blessing to all nations. All of the Old Testament prophets are looking for that blessing to come. The supreme capital B blessing is Jesus Christ. He is the one who crushes the serpent's head. He is the one through people through whom people of every nation will be saved. He is the one who blesses all nations by his death on the cross for their forgiveness of sin and whose resurrection life brings resurrection life. Everyone 
he believes. It's important that Jesus was a Jew because the Jews come from Abraham. Amen? But it's even more important that the promise was given not just to Abraham and his descendants, but to people of all nations, all groups, all races, all colors, all sexes, all languages, all places. They all come because of God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham of a blessing to all nations. This is fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, what, what, what God told Adam and Eve, there's going to be one that's going to come, born the seed of a woman, who's going to crush the serpent and deal with sin and reverse the curse and deal with death. Uh, who's it kind of, what family is it going to come from? Well, descended from Adam and Eve. Well, what family specifically? Through the line of Abraham. And then all through your Old Testament, you work that down. That's why, interestingly, uh, both of both Matthew and Luke, what do they begin with? Genealogies, right? And you're like, genealogies, I hate genealogies. Uh, they're so boring, right? Um, but the reason they begin that way is to track through God's promise being fulfilled. So that you can see that God kept His Word, the blessing that came from Adam to Abraham all the way down. God kept His promise all the way down. By the way, if God kept a promise for thousands of years, it was given to specific people at specific times, do you think you can trust Him for the rest of your life? How many of you are planning to live to be 170, right? Now, not many of us, I would think, <laughs> right? How many of you are thinking, man, 70 sounds old, <laughs> right? It gets younger all the time for me. But, um, but at the same time, I know I'm not going to live thousands of years, at least not in this body, Right? God kept His promise for thousands of years of human history and He is still keeping it to this day. And He can keep His word to you. His promise to you. Jesus is also the better Moses. By the way, if you read Matthew's Gospel and study it, we just finished that up, by the way, in adult Sunday school. Um, I walked through uh, all of Matthew's Gospel. We spent a year doing that. It was really fun. Uh, this... Starting this week, we started through Romans, which if you uh, need you, when you come to Sunday school, you should go and learn Romans along with us because it's really fun. We're having a good time with it. Uh, by next week, we'll be through the first seven verses. Okay, <laughs> I'm serious. It's a deep study, and we're having a good time with it. Um, by the way, starting in two weeks, let me just pull off to the side here for a second. If you have kids, age five, uh, age fifth grade, uh, all the way down to kindergarten, Karen and I are going to start teaching little kids Sunday school in two weeks, and we're going to walk through the whole Bible with them over the course of two years. 104 stories of how the Bible is about Jesus. Okay, so we're going to go slow. We're going to use lots of pictures. Some of you who are adults may be like, "Can I go?" Um, <laughs> um, and if you want to, you can. But um, but 104 stories 
that show how the Bible is about Jesus and teach them the Bible. So, encourage you, challenge you, if you're a parent, have little kids, um, come to Sunday school. You can go to Romans. You can go to Tony Evans if you're one of our ladies uh, and listen to him uh, preach to you. Uh, but you can also um, go to Romans and then you can take your kids and put them with Karen and I and you can trust us with them uh, and we will teach God's Word to them. But Jesus is the better uh, Moses. One of the things Matthew's Gospel spends a lot of time telling us is how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Uh, quick question, what is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave? Sermon on the Mount, right? It's three chapters in Matthew. You read carefully what you understand that what Matthew is doing is showing us that Jesus is the better Moses. Where did Moses receive the law? On the mountain. Where does Jesus give his sermon? On the mountain. Right? Why? Because Jesus is the better Moses. Just like Moses brought down the law from a mountain, uh, Jesus goes up a mountain on the Sermon on the Mount to show, to show the people of Israel the true meaning of the law, that God requires not just changed behavior, but changed hearts. And what Moses could not accomplish through the law with the people of God, uh, Jesus is saying that, he, that all those who put their faith in Him can do through the Spirit. Because Jesus, by His blood, brings the new covenant and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that changes people from the inside out. See, what the law did was told people what was wrong and said, don't do this. If you do this, here's the penalty. Here's the sacrifice you must offer. On some things, there was not even a sacrifice you could offer. They just put you to death. You were the sacrifice. But it couldn't change people on the inside. And Jesus is using the law in the Sermon on the Mount to say, look, you see what, what is really required of the law is up here. And when you go, well, I can't do that. Jesus is saying to you, exactly. And it's, the point of it is to drive you to go to Jesus and say to Him, well, if you require up here and I can only do here, how do I close that gap? And he will say to you, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. But now you finally get it. The fact is, is that you can't, by your effort, be good enough to enter into a relationship with God. You can't behave your way into God's favor. What you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of God who sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and to be raised from the dead to give you new life. And when you receive that, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who changes you from the inside out into the kind of person who can do what God requires. How about that? Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the one who leads us into the true promised land. You know that as, as much as people are fighting right now as we speak over patches of dirt, over real estate, that that isn't the fulfillment ultimately of God's promise to either Israel or to us. The 
one day we will inherit a particular patch of ground, but that one day we will enter into the thing which that pictures. We will enter into Jesus' own presence, into his kingdom. And we will reign with him and his kingdom forever. The dirt in Israel is only a picture of a promise that has a better fulfillment. Why is all this business about Moses and Jesus important? Because it reminds us that nobody was ever saved by keeping the law. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law. And knowing that you can't be saved by being good is actually very freeing. It's actually very freeing. Because how many of y'all evaluate how much God loves you. Don't raise your hand. Okay, I'll just warn you in advance. Play poker on this one. Okay. Um, how many of you actually think as you sit out there, okay, well, I've had a pretty good day. I did my quiet time this morning. When I had an opportunity to be mouthy with my friend, I was I was kind instead. Um when my husband asked me to ask me to help him with something, I didn't get snarky with him. I was kind. Uh, when my wife um, uh, was sarcastic with me, I was I was uh, I was gentle in return. Right? I had a pretty good day. I bet Jesus loves me a lot today. Or alternatively, maybe it's been uh, the other kind of day that we have sometimes. Right? We woke up on the wrong side of the bed. We were already hangry when we came down to breakfast. And uh, we yelled at everybody. And we cussed at the guy who cut us off in traffic in front of, you know, as we drove to work. And then we were at work and we were just bitter and resentful the entire time we were there. And we forgot about our Bible. And we didn't go to church this week. And we're just kind of just, and we think, well, I bet Jesus doesn't love me very much right now. Jesus is the better Moses. Which means that God's love for you is not dependent on your behavior. God's love for you is not dependent on your behavior. When did Jesus die for us? Let me get you in. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. In that while we were, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Let me translate that for you. Sinners means while we were in rebellion against God. While we shook our fist at God. While we hated God. While we were running as fast as we could away from God. God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So is God's love for us dependent on our behavior? Say it with me. No! Do I still need to walk with Jesus? Do I still need to put off sin? Do I still need to repent and confess when I screw up? Yes! But God's love for me is not dependent on my behavior. And so I can be at peace in my relationship with God. And know that my relationship with Him has not changed because I had a good day, a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, 
that year. God loves me in spite of my behavior, not as a result of it. You feel me? I come to God in order to be cleansed, not in order to get myself back into relationship. Right? And then when you get that, that also changes your relationship with other people. Right? Where you stop loving other people conditionally too. Right? If you have a spouse, you stop uh, expecting that, well, you know, I better be I better be careful because, you know, I'm I'm on probation with her. Or she's on probation with me. Right? No, you learn how to love each other like God loves. You learn how to be there from your friend for your friends, even when they're not there for you, because you love them, not in spite, not because of their behavior, but in spite of that, because you've chosen to love them. Just like God loves you. Jesus is the better Moses. It frees us from trying harder on our own. And when we get free from that idea, then we are overwhelmed by the grace of God. You'll never understand really how much how, how much grace you have received until you get this. That God doesn't love you because you behave. But God loves you. loves you. And His love for you is meant to transform you and then you walk with Him. There's an order of operations there. Use a mathematical term, right? God loves me first and then changes me. Not I change me and then God loves me. Alright? Jesus is also the better version of Israel. He's the better Israel. If you keep looking at Matthew, uh, he is lining his account of Jesus' life up with Israel's history. And what emerges as you see that is that Jesus is not only reenacting Israel's history with his life, but he is also victorious where they failed. Like Israel, uh, Jesus was born in an impossible and miraculous way. Like them, he lived for a while in Egypt and was called out of Egypt by God. Like Israel, Jesus' life was witness to the massacre of innocent children by a foreign king. Like Israel, Jesus passed through the waters of the Jordan. Interestingly, just like them, he went through the waters on the east side of the Jordan River. Just like they did. It was 40 days for him versus 40 years for the nation, but Jesus overcame Satan's temptation. Where they rebelled against God for lack of food and water, 
Jesus resisted Satan and refused to satisfy the desires of his body in a way that dishonored God. Jesus refused to presume on God's protection and to put God to the test like Israel did at many points. He refused to bow down to Satan and worship him in an effort to gain power and prosperity as Israel did at various points in their long and idolatrous histories. Israel had 12 tribes forming the foundation of their nation. Jesus chose how many apostles? 12. For the foundation of a universal people of God from every nation. Because Jesus draws in people of every kind into his kingdom and gives them full rights as sons of God. Jesus is also the better tabernacle and the temple. These buildings, these structures, one was a tent, the other was a more permanent building. They were the temporary residence of of the presence of God. They were places where God's people could come near to God in relationship. They were the places where they celebrated the fact of their relationship with God through sacrifices. And they made sacrifices twice every day and also every week every month, every season, every year, and these were a reminder that God provided for you every day of your life. These sacrifices showed the need for atonement to be made for sin, for sin to be laid on a substitute, and its blood to be poured out to cover your sin. It showed that you needed your guilt to be taken away and your sin forgotten, like it was with the scapegoat. I love this part of the story. They had two goats. And two goats. And you can think of them as being named forgive and forget. Okay? The forgive goat was taken in and slaughtered. And they took his blood and they poured it out on top of the mercy seat uh, before God. And only the high priest could do that only once a year on Yom Kippur. And what it what it what it depicted was this idea that they you poured it out on top of the Ark of the Covenant and on the Ark of the Covenant they had these two angels representing God's holiness. And the idea was that God was enthroned above these cherubim on top of the Ark. And that they would look down and they would see the blood. And it covered over the symbols of people's sin that were contained in the Ark. The broken tablets the pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded that were there in the ark, they could see these things the rest of the year, but on the Day of Atonement, the the blood of sacrifice, it covered over all these things. And their sin could not be seen. And so it was forgiven. But then you had this other goat. You can call him forget. The scapegoat. And what they did with him was they, they, the high priest would, would, would call out all the sins that the people had committed over the previous year. All of their adultery, all of their murder, all of their lying, all of their theft, all of their coveting, all of their whatever, all of the ways in which they had broken the law. And then they would take that goat outside the camp away from all the people and they would leave it in the wilderness where he can't find his way home. And the idea was 
that your sins were not only forgiven, but forgotten. I heard a story one time of a guy who was, who was talking to his pastor about how he and his wife would fight. He said, yeah, whenever we have a fight, my wife gets historical. Like, you mean hysterical? No, I mean historical. She will say things like, in 1975, you da-da-da-da-da, right? By the way, that is not an example to imitate. Don't do that, right? Whether you're the husband or the wife, once something has been forgiven, it needs to be forgotten in the sense that you don't bring it up ever again, right? You can't save your chips and cash in at a more opportune hand. Um, that's not how this works. This isn't poker. Um, you, you, you don't get to do that, right? And God doesn't do that to us. In fact, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He has removed our sins from us. Right? Jesus is the better tabernacle and temple. Uh, the tabernacle and the temple were the places where you experienced every year your freedom from slavery uh, where you celebrated the fact that God passed over your sins that you were not put to death. They were the places where you celebrated the harvest, God's past miracles, His dwelling among you because they were the place where each uh, sacrifice allowed you to live near God's presence and not be destroyed. You could see God's presence there and you could see the fact that that we are coming close to God and yet we are not destroyed. They were places where symbolic holiness was maintained to show that we need actual holiness to come near to God's presence. But Jesus is superior to both the tabernacle and the temple that replaced it in every way. He is the actual Passover lamb whose death inaugurates the new covenant. In Jesus, our sins are not just passed over but they are removed from us entirely. Our sins are forgiven and covered and forgotten. Jesus didn't just come near to us like He did in the Old Testament. He became one of us in the flesh. And His death and resurrection means that we can come not just near to Him, but we can come boldly near to Him. Think about this. Under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, under the in the Old Testament, only priests could get near to God's presence as they went into the holy place. And only once a year the high priest could come before God himself on the day of atonement. You know, the, the high priest's robe had bells around the hem. You know why? So they could hear that we have a living priest on the inside of there. And the story goes that they would tie a rope to his ankle as he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. You know why? So that if, he, if God struck him dead in there, they could pull him out without having to go in, suit up the next guy and send him in. How do you like to be high priest number two? <laughs> right? Uh, the last guy to try this got struck dead in the presence of God. But, but you and I... Because we have Jesus, can come boldly before God at any 
time. You don't have to come before God in fear and trembling, worried that God's wrath might break out against you like Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who were struck dead. You can come with confidence because Jesus Christ has already borne God's wrath for you on the cross. And there is not any left over for you. There's none left over for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. God's wrath was already satisfied by the death of Jesus. And it was so satisfied that you remember what happened? The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. How does something 30 feet high get torn from top to bottom? Because God ripped it in half. Because He was trying to make sure that people got the reality that the veil that separated God from His people up to that point had been permanently made open so that all people could come into God's presence at any time. God has made a way for you and I to come boldly before His presence at any time. Jesus is the better judge and king and priest and prophet. The judges of the Old Testament were all imperfect people. All of them. The more of them that there were, as long as you read the book of Judges, the worse these guys get. They didn't judge necessarily justly. Their sins got in the way. Uh, the same Gideon who led uh, an army to victory uh, and created this whole and enormous deliverance by great faith in God also led the nation to essentially make him quasi-king and led the nation into idolatry. The deliverance the judges brought was also temporary because the people went right back to their sin over time. In fact, the whole book of Judges is this cycle that repeats uh, several times through the book of, well, the people fell into sin and so God let them become oppressed by some foreign power. And then they repented and God raised up a judge to deliver them. And then like two pages later, so the people of God fell back into sin. So the deliverance that the judges brought was temporary. But Jesus is the perfect judge. He is the one who saves and delivers His people from sin and its consequences forever. He is the perfect King, the true Son of David, who fulfills all God's promises of a righteous King who punishes evil and rewards good. He brings in a perfect kingdom in which righteousness dwells and all God's people dwell in perfect peace with everyone sitting under their own vine and fig tree with no one to make them afraid forevermore. Jesus is the perfect and great high priest who is not only the priest that makes the sacrifice but he is himself the sacrifice being in, being offered and so brings an end to all sacrifices so that no other sacrifices ever are needed. Because of His work on the cross and through His resurrection uh, that have paid for sin, Jesus, 
does the one thing that no high priest ever did, which was to sit down at the right hand of God, where He always lives to intercede for for us. And because of this, we can always be confident that our gentle and lowly Savior who reigns with the Father will mark our sins paid in full and never count them against us. You are so deeply loved. What people ever had a prophet like Jesus? Whose words are fulfilled in Himself and which carry such deep beauty, such amazing truth, and such terrifying warnings against sin all wrapped up into one. When you listen to Jesus, you get all of that. Deep beauty, amazing truth, terrifying warnings all wrapped into the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is the best kind of prophet who not only calls to repentance, but who makes repentance possible at the same time. And finally, Jesus is the great I Am who comes in the flesh. I've already alluded to this once, but Jesus fulfills the shadow picture that Moses saw in the bush. Moses didn't know who was speaking to him. Remember, he had to ask. He says, sending you to my people Israel. He's like, well, first of all, who are you? And who should I say is sending me? God says, Tell them, I am has spoken to you. God reveals Himself as the I am. The one who is. The only one who is. John's Gospel makes it clear that this God, the God of who is the I am of the burning bush and the plagues and the Passover, the God of the wilderness and Joshua and kings and chronicles and judges, the God whom the prophets and the priests proclaimed and against whom Israel rebelled and was exiled, who loved them and brought them back home, that this God, this is the God who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that He is the Son sent by God who so loved the world that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He is the God who doesn't just give bread in the desert, but the God who is the bread of life. He is the God who is the source of of living water that satisfies the deepest longings of your soul and of mine for rest, for refreshment, for life. He is the light of the world that shines in the darkness of our sinful, broken world and our broken lives and leads us back home. He is the gate for the sheep through which all must pass to become part of God's flock. He is the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep He is the one who holds them in His almighty hand out of which no one can take them. He is one with the Father. He is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the only means by which a person may enter life and experience the resurrection from the dead. He is the true vine. And only those who remain connected to Him have life 
and experience fruitfulness from that connection to Him. He is the I Am who came in the flesh, who lived as one of us. In other words, Jesus is the hero at the center of your Bible and the subject of every book in it. Amen? So how then shall we respond to these things? Well, I'm tempted to just stand back and say, Behold your King and your God and the One who loves you and encourages us to simply sit in awe of how amazing Jesus is in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament proclaims and promises. And there's absolutely nothing wrong, by the way, with doing that, responding exactly that way to these things. Because we need to worship and celebrate Jesus in light of this. But in addition to that, can I suggest something else? the center of all of Jesus' work. The purpose of everything that He has done is to enable sinners like you and me to safely draw near to Him. Adam and Eve, before sin came, do you remember what happened with them? They walked with God. His very presence would come down into the garden with them, and they would walk with God in the cool of the day. But their sin made it impossible for us to do that anymore. And all through the Old Testament, God was looking for a way and making a way for people to draw near to Him and to be close to Him and for Him to be close to them. But it was dangerous for them to get close to Him. But everything in your Bible is about how Jesus came to make it Possible for you and me not just to walk with God in the cool of the day when things are perfect, but despite our brokenness, despite the brokenness of the world, despite the brokenness of your own soul, God has made a way in Jesus Christ for you to walk with Him. So brothers and sisters, don't miss that opportunity. Don't merely listen to this message and hear how amazing Jesus is and have a wonderful worship experience in your seat and then later as we sing, respond back to Him. By all means, do that. But don't let it stop there. Be amazed by Jesus every day. Proclaim His goodness to your soul every day and draw near to Him. Pray. You know the Lord actually waits and wants to hear your voice speak to Him? I couldn't get the mayor of Peoria on the phone. But the Lord of the universe waits with eager anticipation to hear me talk. And He waits for you too. Read His Word. Fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Proclaim the goodness of Jesus to the lost because you can't hold in the goodness of Jesus to you and keep it to yourself. Let the joy of knowing Jesus and drawing near to Him overflow 
in your soul. And he will transform your life. Not just your worship on Sunday morning. Amen? Let's pray. And then let's sing. God, our Heavenly Father, help us to be awed by Jesus Christ. He is everything that you wanted to tell us about in the Word. He is everything that we need for life. He is the very best gift that's ever been given. He is the one whom every page of the Bible shouts about. Father, help us to be in awe of Him. And help us to be even more awed by the love You have for us, demonstrated for us loudly as You can shout it to us in Jesus Christ. Father, let that soak in to our hearts. Let it soak in so deep that you don't love us because of us, but you love us through Jesus Christ. In spite of us, you love us. Help us, Father, to get off the performance trap, thinking that you love us when we behave and love us less when we don't. Remember that you loved us when we were as far away from you as we could possibly be and you've not stopped loving us. Father, let that reality transform. May we be transformed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit through Jesus' death and resurrection bought and brings. And Father, let it overflow out of our heart, out of our mouth, to all those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.